Chapter 13. Acts. Acts 13. It's a major turning point in the narrative of Acts. So let me just, most of what I'm reading today is, is notes from MacArthur, notes from um, R. Kent Hughes, notes I've, Kevin sent me from some other commentaries. Is this is all this is all pre-written? Basically, I'm just going to be most of what I'm going to do is just read from other men who have studied this because there is a lot to go over here. So we'll start with this. This is a where Acts changes. There's like a narrative shift here from Jerusalem and Peter and the church to this new church that's been established in Antioch. This is mainly Gentile. And so the the camera eye, let's say, is shifting from Jerusalem to Antioch. And we're going to shift from Paul, I mean, uh, Peter, and over to Paul and Barnabas in Antioch. So from this point forward, we're mostly talking about Gentile churches, Gentile believers, for the most part. Um, let me just read this. Mark's, uh, let's see, chapter 13 marks a turning point in Acts. The first 12 chapters focus on Peter. The remaining chapters revolve around Paul. With Peter, the emphasis is the Jewish church in Jerusalem and in Judea. With Paul, the focus is on the spread to the Gentile church throughout the Roman world, which began at the church in Antioch. This is Antioch in Syria. There's two Antiochs. We're going to see the second one later. It's more in, it's in the Galatian area. But this first, this Antioch we're focusing on is in Assyria. This is the Antioch we talked about last week. This like this huge, or maybe week before last, third largest city in the Roman Empire. Very metropolitan. Lots of different people live here. Lots of different cultures. It's very pagan. Okay, that's the main one. This other Antioch we're going to see later, maybe next week. Different, completely different Antioch, okay? And so we're going to frame this in the as, as, as the church militant, okay? That's what we're going to start seeing here. This is church militant. This is a church going into the pagan world with the light of Christ, okay? <clears throat> what else? Let's see. So chapter 13, Paul is bringing the gospel to the Gentiles. There are currently two churches, Jerusalem and Antioch, two established churches. Right? I mean, there's believers all over Judea and Samaria as far as the church with an established hierarchy of pastors and leaders, Jerusalem, Antioch, at least that we see in Scripture. There may be other gatherings of people's homes and other cities in Judea, with, but they're not told. we're not told about them. So we just have to assume that's the case, but as far as large established churches, Jerusalem and Antioch. Okay, so we're, we're setting the stage here for this new, this new. It's almost like a new story here. I mean, it's this one continuous story, but it's such a shift in the narrative here. <clears throat> so one through three, we see the commission of the church militant and Paul's and Barnabas. Well, we should say Barnabas and Paul. At this point, Barnabas is the leader, not Paul. Remember, we talked about that, too. It's always Barnabas and Paul, Barnabas and Paul. <clears throat> if we talk about this, this this new church. So let's read one through three first. Well, also, let's just, let me just reiterate what I said last week. 
If you remember from 11, 11 is about Barnabas and Paul. And it ends this way. This is, this is 11.29. And in the proportion that any of the disciples had means, each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brethren living in Judea. And this they did, sending it in charge of Barnabas and Saul to the elders. Remember Barnabas first. And if you skip 12 and pick up in, in uh, the end of 12, at verse 25, it picks right back where it left off. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their mission, right? The mission to bring the relief to the church in Judea, taking along with them John, who was also called Mark. So the narrative is going along there. You get to the end of 11, and it picks right back up. I mean, you could say chapter 13 because that break right there is really, but. So this chapter 12 is like this parenthetical, right? This, this scene, almost like you see in, in uh, Revelation. It's just, it's out of place in the narrative. So we're following Barnabas and Paul. They go to Jerusalem and suddenly we're talking about Peter in jail and James being killed. And then at the end of that, well, boom, we're right back to Barnabas and Paul again. Just like the story never broke. So in the more I've thought about this, read about it, the more I've, I believe that chapter 12's purpose, that little parenthetical scene change, is to tell us that even though the the battle, let's say, the battle line of the church militant has moved outward beyond Judea and Samaria into the Roman world, there's still a church in Jerusalem that's still there and it's still alive and it's still vibrant and there's still stuff happening there. And so well, I think what we're being told here is don't forget about Jerusalem and God telling the Jerusalem believers, I'm still with you. You know, even though the action is going on in Antioch now, I'm still with you here. You're not alone. I know you're being persecuted. James has been killed. Peter's been arrested, but fear not, for I am with you. So there's still going, stuff going on in Jerusalem. But our story shifts now. And that's why I think 12 is stuck there where it is between uh, Barnabas and Saul leaving Antioch and Barnabas and Saul returning to Antioch. It's just, that's, it's just stuck there. This is out of the way, parenthetical little story. And I believe that's why it's there. So let's uh, talk about the uh, departure from Antioch or the commission of the church militant. This is chapter 13. We read 12:25, and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem where they had fulfilled their mission, taking along with them John, who was also called Mark. That's John Mark who wrote the Gospel of Mark. Reading on. Now there were at Antioch in the church. So it specifically says there's a church in Antioch that was there, prophets and teachers. Then it lists them. This is like the, the pastor. This is the uh, I don't know what you call it, the church um, staff. It's just church staff in Antioch. You got Barnabas, our boy Barnabas, son of uh, encouragement, and Simeon, who was called Niger, which is Latin for black. So we say pretty safe to assume this is a black guy, probably from North Africa. And Lucius of Cyrene. Cyrene is in North Africa, so he's most likely a, a swarthy guy. <laughs> 
were also, back in chapter 11, people from that's yeah. This is probably one of those people that we're referring to. The men from Cyrene who shared the gospel of Antioch. This is most likely one of those. This guy Lucius. And Manaean, who had been brought up with brought up with Herod, the Tetrarch. And then lastly, they list Saul. So you know, so you notice Barnabas is first, and Saul is last. So all I'm going to say about that is this is a very diverse group of men. You got Barnabas, who's a Levite from Cyprus, who had probably served in the temple because he's a Levite. Then you got Simeon, whose nickname is Niger, which is Latin for black. This Lucius, who's from North Africa. Manan was brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. That can be... That could be translated foster brother. So this is a very well-to-do guy. He grew up in Herod's household. Okay, it's kind of like a a brother to this Herod the Tetrarch. Is Herod Antipas the one who mocked Jesus at his trial? Okay, this is remember our Herod bingo card. This is that Herod. He grew up with that Herod. Okay, Herod Antipas. He was the Tetrarch. Uh, so he grew up there, very well to do, you know, and then you got Saul, who was a Pharisee and was very, you know, trained under Gamaliel. So it's a very diverse group of men, all different backgrounds, different upbringings, but they're all united in Christ and they're leading this church. Okay. So All right, where was I at? While they were ministering, this is verse 2. While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, quote, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul. Notice that. Barnabas and Saul. Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then when they had fasted and prayed, laid their hands on them, they sent them away. So, man, I mean, so we see Barnabas saw being commissioned to go out on a missionary journey. So the church is sending them out. But really, it's the Holy Spirit sending them out. Let me go ahead and back up and tell you all this. Who knows what Murphy's Law is? If you know what? Can go wrong, it will go wrong. That's number three. Number one is nothing is as easy as it looks. Number two is everything takes longer than you think it will. And number three is if anything goes wrong, it will, if anything can go wrong, it will go wrong. Okay. Sounds like a <laughs> that's Murphy's law. That's that's gonna we're gonna look, look that again because John Mark John Mark is gonna leave Saul here later. So that's so let's look at these first three chapters. This so this was the church staff at Antioch with Barnabas. You could say Barnabas is the lead pastor. Okay. That makes sense. That's safe to say. Barnabas is lead pastor of the church staff at Antioch. Okay. So they talk about a few things here. There's a mention. They mention fasting, uh, ministering to the Lord, and laying on of hands. Are all mentioned mentioned right here. So let's just talk about those things for just a minute. This ministering to the Lord. That when I read that, it said. That's not usually how that's stated. 
a minister is ministering to his flock, to his church. This states they're ministering to the Lord. And uh, MacArthur's note says this is a this is from a Greek word, which in Scripture describes priestly service. So that's why I think it's it's, it's rendered or translated that way as a ministry to the Lord, because that's what a priest did. A priest ministered in the temple to the Lord. So serving in leadership in the church is an act of worship to God and consists of offering spiritual sacrifices to him, including prayer, oversight of the flock, plus preaching and teaching the word. <clears throat> and then fasting is often connected with vigilant, passionate prayer and includes either a loss of desire for food or the purposeful setting aside of food to concentrate on spiritual issues. So, R. Kent Hughes mentions both of these things, so I'm just going to read you what he says about fasting. A lot of people call fasting a spiritual discipline. You know, y'all have noticed we don't really fast. We'll talk about that. But here, here he says, fasting <clears throat> is always a mark of deep spiritual concern, indicating that a person is willing to set aside the normal demands of life in order to concentrate for a time on what God wants. Yeah, so it appears that the entire Antioch church was joined in this pursuit. They were worshiping the Lord, and during the, that time, the call of the Holy Spirit came upon them. Worship, okay, here, worship and service go together and should never be separated. If we try to work for the Lord without worshiping Him, we will settle for a legalistic, self-centered service. And if we worship and never work, we will end up with a form of godliness, but no relationship or power. Laying on of hands. While God alone did the commissioning, he did it through the church, through the laying on of hands. Now, what is that? Laying on of hands. Some have surmised that this was a kind of ordination to the Gentile ministry, but actually it was an expression of the church's identification with Barnabas and Saul as they began a work of world evangelization. Just as in the Old Testament, the offerer placed his hands on the sacrifice. Y'all know that, right? When a person brought the burnt offering to the tabernacle or their sin offering or their guilt offering or their peace offering, they would lay their hand on the head of the sacrifice and then they would draw the knife across the throat. They had to actually kill the sacrifice. And then it went to the priest. And the priest handled it after that. They did the skinning and the sectioning and the burning and the offering. But the, the, off, the person who brought it had to actually do the killing. So just as in the Old Testament, an offerer placed his hands on the sacrifice, expressing his identification with the sacrifice. Yeah, that's what that was for. There's, there's no sin being transferred, right, from the person to the animal. That's, it's all symbolic. There's no actual transfer of sin taking place. It's just they're, they're expressing his identification with the sacrifice. So now the assembled church of Antioch, laid their hands on these two ambassadors for Christ. They were saying, in effect, quote, Brothers, we are with you in this great enterprise. As you go, we go. As you go, we go. We are part of you. That's what this laying on of hands is. just identifying themselves with the men they're sending out. Kevin sent me some stuff on this, too. It's, it's Oh yeah, there's laying on hands. Leadership was laying hands on the 
other people that were coming into that yeah. spot. So let me read this, what Kevin sent me from, I don't even know where this is from. It's about fasting. Scripture does not command Christians to fast. God does not require it or demand it of Christians. At the same time, the Bible presents fasting as something that is good, profitable, and beneficial. The book of Acts records believers fasting before they made important decisions, Acts 13, 2. Right there. Fasting and prayer are often linked together, Luke 2.37. Too often, the focus of fasting is on the lack of food. Instead, the purpose of fasting should be to take your eyes off the things of this world to focus completely on God. <clears throat> fasting is a way to demonstrate to God and to ourselves that we are serious about our relationship with Him. Fasting helps us gain a new perspective and a renewed reliance upon God. Although fasting in Scripture is almost always a fasting from food, there are other ways to fast. Anything given up temporarily in order to focus all our attention on God can be considered a fast. That's from 1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 5. Let me just say on that, uh, a, a, a screen fast is kind of a thing I, I try to do like on Sundays. Once I get home, my phone goes somewhere else, and I try not to look at it or touch it the rest of the day, if possible, unless I need to call Lindsay or something. But, you know, like a, a, a phone fast is a good a good way we in modern world, because what do we depend on almost every day constantly? We, we, have, we, we need it at our side almost every minute of every day. It's our phones. Fasting should be limited to a set time, especially when fasting from food. So extended periods of time without eating can be harmful to the body. I don't agree with that because I fast all the time, not for spiritual reasons, but for health reasons. And it's, it's, I don't snore anymore. I've lost 30 pounds and almost all that is from fasting. Uh, but you know, some people can't fast. You got to talk to a doctor. If you're going to go long periods without food, your body knows what to do. Your body can handle it if you're not sick, you know. Uh, fasting is not intended to punish the flesh, but to redetect, redirect attention to God. Fasting should not be considered a dieting method either. The purpose of a biblical, this is a biblical fast is not to lose weight, but rather to gain deeper fellowship with God. Anyone can fast, but some may not be able to fast from food, diabetics, for example. I don't even agree with that. Everyone can temporarily give up something in order to draw closer to God. That's the, the statement. Everyone can temporarily give up something to draw closer to God. By taking your eyes off the things of this world, we can more successfully turn our attention to Christ. Fasting is not a way to get God to do what we want. Fasting changes us, not God. Fasting is not a way to appeal more spiritual than others. Mm -hmm. Jesus talked about that in the Sermon on the Mount. Fasting is to be done in a spirit of humility and a joyful attitude. <clears throat> Jesus declared, when you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show men they are fasting. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. What does that mean? There is no spiritual reward for that type of fasting. They're just doing it so men will know they're fasting. They have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put all on your head, wash your face, so that it will not be obvious to men that you are fasting, but only to your Father, who is unseen, and your father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Laying on of hands. Laying on of hands has no power in itself. Laying on of hands is only used 
by God when it is done in agreement with God's word. Okay? So that's fasting, laying on hands. Am I still recording? Yes. 20 minutes. Testament term fasting as afflicting your souls. That's what the term was for that in Old Testament. Okay. Something they of course they didn't do it on a feast days because those are about feasts, but they did it on like the day of atonement. There were certain days they were supposed to afflict their souls. Didn't they always fast during morning periods too? Yeah, they did that. Yeah. And, um, Seems like it was always associated with morning or spiritual distress. Yeah, because one of them, I forgot which one, I think it was Isaiah, they actually talk about someone that's hungry, poor and hungry, as someone who is afflicted in their soul. And um, All right. Well, in Ezra and Nehemiah, it talks a lot about fasting and prayer, too, before they made the decision to, like, go to the king to ask about returning home to help rebuild the walls in Jerusalem. So that, with them, it was, too, associated with big decisions and stuff. Like, they would fast and pray before going to the king and then going in front of the officials in Jerusalem to talk about the wall and all that kind of stuff. Okay. That's all good. Now, before we move on, let's just go ahead and look at Paul, his ministry. There's some good stuff here. But I want us to know this because as we read forward, as you read forward, preparing for these lessons this week, there's some things I want us to look for in the way Paul ministered, his, his patterns of ministry, because um, as we as we come into this new section, this will all be good stuff for us just to know and have in our heads as we read these. As we read this, okay. So we're gonna. I know this is taking forever to get going, but we, <laughs> it is what it is. So we're gonna look at Paul's call, his methods, and his chronology real quick. Okay, this is some more stuff Kevin sent me. All right, so we looked at his call or his commission, his commission there. So as the Holy Spirit called, ordained, and sent Paul and Barnabas, the church only recognized, confirmed, and cooperated with the work of the Holy Spirit. Okay, this is all from God, not from the church. The church is, God is using the church, and, and the church is cooperating with God to make this mission happen. Note that the Antiochene church sent Paul and Barnabas away to a foreign field while there were yet a half million unconverted pagans in Antioch. Just make note of that. So we'll look at the missionary methods of Paul. So it says, before we study the missionary labors of Paul, which is what we're about to see in, throughout this chapter, let's look at his methods and his chronology. So one, he was he was ever led by the Spirit. We see that in 13.2. He was commissioned by the Spirit. It's all through Acts. 16.6 through 10, 18.9 through 11, chapter 21, verse 14. Two, he carried the gospel westward, not eastward. If the Spirit had led him eastward, then all succeeding history might be different from what we have today. Three, he strove to preach in areas where Christ's name was unknown. So the work of an apostle is not to pastor churches, but to found and establish new churches. So that's mainly what Paul was doing. 
He was establishing all these churches we read about in the in the epistles, right? He used large metropolitan cities as his base of operations. We always see that. He goes to the city. He planted churches in large cities, and then his missionary helpers carried the gospel to the smaller cities and towns in the surrounding areas. We're going to see that in chapter 13. At, at this Antioch in Galatia, after Paul and Barnabas leave, it says the, the gospel was published to all the surrounding areas, even after Barnabas and Paul had left. So he used the cities as his base, and then the believers would spread it after that to the surrounding areas. These are all things we're going to see throughout the book of Acts. He preached first in the synagogue, the Jewish synagogue, in the cities that he visited. This was done not as a matter of preference, but as a matter of precedence. Six, he had missionary helpers. These mostly young assistants helped him in caring for his personal needs, in preaching, in troubleshooting, and in church extension work, like we said about bringing it to all the surrounding small towns. He always revisited the church that he had planted. He did this to more firmly establish these churches. He wrote epistles of correction and encouragement to the churches after he had planted them. He wrote these letters during his long absences from his churches. If he could not visit his churches to more firmly establish them, he did it by means of epistles. So that's why we have epistles. Paul couldn't be everywhere at once. So that's why he would write these epistles to these churches when he hadn't seen them in a while, normally. Uh, he did not hesitate to use the privileges associated with his Roman citizenship. We see that all, we're going to see that all over the place. He followed certain financial policies. He did no deputation work, whatever that means. He refused offerings in areas where, where receiving them would hinder the gospel from being received. He did not receive freely given gifts. No, he did receive gifts in areas where the gospel would not be hindered by doing so. So if it was a problem for the spread of the gospel, he would not accept gifts. If it wasn't a problem, he did. He supported himself if need required. Let me see that in chapter 18, verse 3. I think he was tent making in that part to support himself. He handled church finances in such a way that no one could accuse him of dishonesty, and he purposed to plant and establish self-governing, self-sustaining, self-propagating churches wherever the Lord sent him. So that was always his goal in the church establishment of the church. He would always leave men there who could lead and continue the work after he left. Self-propagating, self-sustaining. Okay. So now let's look at his missionary chronology. <clears throat> I'm going to read it all, and, I want, and I'm going to ask y'all a question about the pattern here. His first missionary journey, 45 to 48. Remember last week we talked about where we were here? Antipas, not Antipas. We think Paul got to Antioch in 42 AD. Remember? Claudius reigned from 42 to 48. So that places us between 42 and 44 AD where these events are happening. This famine that had made them send these these gifts to Jerusalem to help support them, right? This famine happened during the reign of Claudius, which began in 42, so you know it's after that. And then Agrippa, that we read about his death, was in 44. So it has to be between those, right? So we know right where we are in, in history, 42 to 44 AD. <clears throat> he left on his first missionary journey, 45 AD. That's where we are now. 45 to 48. 45, 46, 47, 48. Four years. 
So that's his first missionary journey. Took four years. Next, you have his furlough back in Antioch, which is 48 to 50. 48, 49, 50. His second missionary journey from 50 to 53. 50, 51, 52, 53. His third missionary journey, 54 to 58. 54, 55, 56, 57, 58. That's a long one, five years. Then you have his imprisonment at Caesarea, 58 to 60. 58, 59, 60. Then his journey to Rome, 60 to 61, two years. And then his first Roman imprisonment, 61 to 63, three years. His period of release, 63 to 65, three years. And then his second Roman imprisonment, 65 to 67, two years, and then his death in 67. So that's kind of the chronology. We're, gonna, we're starting in 45 now. We're going to go all the way to there. Now, what is, what's the, this is what I noticed. What did y'all notice about that? Threes. Three, two, two to four. Just about every period of this is two to four years. Kind of an average of three years. Each, each event is about a three year. So we, let's just remember that when we're reading. We're kind of going in three year increments here. Okay. And, well, we'll just go ahead and read this too. So the group, we got Paul, Barnabas, and John Mark who begin the journey. Uh, John Mark seems deserts them. We'll see that. And then we're on the city of Cyprus. So let's go ahead and go back to our... Back to the book. All right, so we've, we've established all that. The way he operated in his chronology, and we have his call. So next we'll go to the mission of the church militant. The mission of the church militant. We saw the, the commission, now the mission. Verse 4 and 5. So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia. And from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews first. And they had John to assist them. That's John Mark. Solution would be, I don't know, somewhere around here. Maybe in Phoenicia here. Because if you say this is Antioch, Solution's going to be down this coast somewhere here. And they just sail right over here to Seleucia, which is on the eastern tip of Cyprus. All right, so we're going to say this. The course of their first mission was quite simple. They set sail from Seleucia, a port city near Antioch, somewhere around here, for Salamis, the port city of the island of Cyprus. It was an easy 130-mile voyage. The ancient world regarded Cyprus very much like we regard Hawaii or the Bahamas. William Barclay says it was called Markaria or Happy Isle because its climate was so perfect and its resources so abundant. For some, it was a place in the sun or a fantasy island, but it was also a needy place. It was the crossroads of the Mediterranean and a natural place to go to first because Barnabas was from Cyprus himself. Upon arrival, their method was simple. Travel the island from east to west, from Salamis to Paphos, a distance of about 90 miles, preaching the gospel first in the Jewish synagogue, Jewish synagogues and also to the Gentiles. So, 
Paphos would be over here on the western. So they started on the east side and just worked their way across the island, 90 miles, preaching in all the towns as they went. Uh, verse 5 tells us they brought along John Mark to assist them. Some see him in the first as the first ministerial intern. According to Colossians 4.10, he was Barnabas' younger cousin. We talked about Mark the other day, right? He was he grew up in a nice, he was well-to-do. His mother had a very large home. We think that may be where the upper room was. That's where they were all praying when Peter was in prison. So there was a lot of people, so it was a big home. So we can infer from that that John Mark probably had a pretty, you know, middle class at least upbringing. Okay. Uh, said, well, he says he evidently came from a well-to-do family in Jerusalem and had been privy to the great goings-on in the Holy City. He would later author the Gospel of Mark. And this is this guy talking, Arkin Hughes. He says, I believe, this is Arkin Hughes saying, I believe, considering what happened later, that he was enamored with the romance of the venture. In his mind, he saw himself accompanying Barnabas and Saul as they conquered the world. He probably expected to see the miracle of the Antioch church duplicated elsewhere. Remember that? Because Antioch was just, it exploded there, you know. When these guys got there and they said the hand of the Lord was with them, and the church just exploded. And maybe John Mark expected to see that everywhere they went, you know. Uh, and then there was also the appeal of a cruise to the Happy Isle where the olive trees glistened in the sun. You know, he's just, this is all supposition, okay? But once on the missionary journey, reality quickly set in. They all became tired, maybe even exhausted. The accommodations were not always the best, and soon the romance was gone. Mark began to wonder why he had come on this trip. So that's just a little there about Mark. Now we're going to see the opposition to the church militant. That's in verses 6, 7, and 8. Opposition. So when they had gone through the whole island, as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician. Now notice, they arrive in Seleucia. Now they're all the way to Paphos. And what does it say? Nothing. It doesn't say people were being saved all over the island. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say people rejected them in the synagogues. It doesn't say that. It's just they, they arrive here, and suddenly they're here. Uneventful, basically. Just when they spoke and people probably listened and okay. That's all we can take from the from the, the text. So they had gone because when they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar Jesus. He was with the proconsul, that's a Roman magistrate kind of guy. Not a magistrate, that's a judge, a Roman governor, whatever. Official. What? Oh, okay. Look at the Lord supply me with an answer. When I read a while ago, they were he did he did he didn't do any missionary or uh, deputation, and I said whatever that means. I just received this message. Deputation is the process by which churches deputize missionaries to go out on 
to other parts of the world on their behalf. So apparently Paul never deputized other missionaries. He was a missionary sent from Antioch. Okay. Thanks, Scott. Scott sent me that. Answered that question. So Paul never engaged in that. He never deputized other people. <clears throat> he was deputized right there in 13 when the, when the Spirit said, Sit apart from me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work I have called them for. And then they laid hands on him. That's when he was deputized to missionary work. Okay, he was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul, and he sought to hear the word of God. But Elimus, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, Bar-Jesus, Bar he opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. I mean, do we really need to explain what happened there that much? I mean, this guy told the proconsul, you don't want to listen to these men. They're lying to you. Listen to me. He's a magician. There's, I mean, there's a lot we could say about that, but let me just read this. Uh, there is a cost to sincere service for Christ. If you never share your faith, then you will never look like a fool. If you never stand for righteousness on a social issue, you will never be rejected. Never walk out of a theater because a movie or play is offensive, and you will never be called a prig. Never practice consistent honesty in business, and you will not lose the trade of a not-so-honest associate. Never reach out to the needy, and you will never be taken advantage of. I have firsthand experience of that. My cousin EJ, who helped me when I came out of jail, he's helped so many people. When they come out of jail, he, he bends over backwards, and he gets taken advantage of over and over and over and over. And he just keeps doing it. It's amazing to me to watch him help men that come out of jail, give them money, give them jobs, give them work, and then they just take advantage of him. And he just continues to do it. So, so if we never reach out to the needy, then you don't have to worry about that. You'll never be taken advantage of it. Never give your heart, and it will never be broken. Never go to Cyprus, and you'll never be subjected to a dizzy, heart-convulsing confrontation with Satan. Because that's what's happening here. Okay? Seriously follow Christ, and you will experience a gamut of sorrows almost completely unknown to the unbeliever. But, of course, you will also know the joy of the adventure with the Lord of the universe and of spiritual victory as you live a life of allegiance to him. So for, Bar for Saul and Barnabas, the battle was on. Okay. What do we call that? Opposition to the church militant. That, I also found interesting that word magician there is the same word that they used for the Magi that came to Jesus in Matthew 2. Okay. That's interesting. Well, they were considered the wise men from... That's what right? this is. Yeah, wise men. Yeah. Yeah. Magician, same thing. Oh, uh, so for, sorry, for Saul and Barnabas, okay, let's say Barnabas and Saul. Let's get that right. For Barnabas and Saul, the battle was on, but really, right here is where it flips. Because watch who addresses this guy, who confronts this guy. It's not Barnabas, it's Saul. So, the victory of the church militant, 9 through 12. 
Uh, let's see. Verse 9 tells us that Paul fixed his gaze on Elimus the wizard. Yeah, what a stare that must have been. Verse 9. But Saul, who was also known as Paul, not Barnabas, Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, fixed his gaze on this magician and said, quote, You who are full of all deceit and fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease to make crooked the straight ways of the Lord? That's a pretty serious statement. <clears throat> uh, this guy says it was discernment that the Spirit gives that Paul saw the state of Elimus' heart. And but the Holy Spirit also fills his children with love. Paul loved God and he loved Paulus. But the spirit of love is also a spirit of fire. And so Paul addresses him and says, Behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him. And he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed, and when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. And there's this note here. Interestingly, archaeology has confirmed Luke's report. Sir William Ramsey reports that inscriptions bearing Sergius Paulus' name have been found on Cyprus, confirming that he was a Christian and that his entire family became Christian. And then right after that, we see... Uh, Will you not cease to make crooked the straight ways of the Lord? Now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you. We read all that. The proconsul believed when he saw what had happened, being amazed at the teaching of the Lord. Uh, now Paul and his companions put out to sea from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. But John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But going on from Perga, they arrived at Pisidian Antioch. This is the second Antioch I was talking about. This is a different Antioch. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. And after the reading of the law and the prophets, as they always did in the synagogues, the synagogue officials sent to them saying, Brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioned with his hand. He said, and we'll stop right there. We're going to see Paul's first sermon next week. It's great. Um, so we saw the opposition. We saw the victory. Let me just finish this up with this. We don't know exactly why John Mark left. Okay. Most scholars believe it's like this guy said. He just he was a kid. He wasn't used to the hardship of this life. The shine wore off, so he went home. There may have also been sickness on the way because Paul did not preach in Pamphylia but went on to Galatia. We just read that. They landed and left. Went to Antioch. Okay. Why did he do that? He wrote in Galatians 4.13, quote, You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. So scholars conjecture or suppose that he may have caught malaria in Pamphylia, which was notorious for, for malaria. And then he moved to the safer climate of Galatia. All of this, combined with John Mark's privileged upbringing, was simply too much for the young man. So he went home 
and later he would beautifully redeem himself. But for the time being, Paul considered him a deserter. But John Mark was a wonderful young man, but at this point in his life, he was just the victim of his own uninformed, idealistic expectations. He did not understand the realities of war. But later he would understand, and Paul would say, Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. That's the second Timothy. So then we're going to end with this. Let's face it. Murphy's Law is alive and well in the church. Life is difficult, even for Christians. Any teaching otherwise is at best misinformed and at worst an outright lie. And we'll stop right there. We have so much more to go. And it's 1024, so anything, questions before we pray and get out of here? I thought it was interesting that the uh, our Jesus person, when he got all of those words added, he could have repented. And he had the same experience that Paul had of becoming blind and needed to be led by the hand. I thought that was interesting. Yep, he surely did. That was interesting. He was struck blind. Um, but Paul stood him up, didn't he? He stood him up right. You son of the devil. But he could have confessed him. Oh, sure. He could have. If God had granted it to him to believe and to repent. But apparently that's not what happened. But it was pretty unsuccessful on Cyprus, according to what we see. There was only one convert, that, that one proconsul that we're, that's, we're told about. So pretty uneventful, probably pretty boring for young John Mark. And he's like, well, where's all the, where's the revival? I thought we were going to see revival on Cyprus. I mean, you could, you know, I wouldn't be wrong to say that, I don't think. But uh, just one quick more thing before we get to Paul's sermon. You know, it's, he says, he, he, he asks Paul and Barnabas when they get to Pisidian Antioch and they're in the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he, after they read the law in the province, the synagogue official said, brethren, if you have any word of exhortation to the people, say it. Well, why, why would he ask them? It's because normally when out-of-town guests were in the synagogue, men, not women, but if men from out-of-town were there, they would ask them, do you have a would you like to speak? You know, and I'm sure Paul was known. You know, he was from I think this the city in Antioch is around and when it's up in here somewhere. Tarsus is also somewhere over here, so they may know who Paul was. I don't know, but we do know they were not from here. You know, they were guests in the synagogue that week, and so they were asked, "Would you like to address the congregation?" And then that's it. We'll stop right there. And we'll start. We'll pick it up next week at uh, Paul's first recorded sermon to this synagogue in Pisidian Antioch, uh, verse sixteen. We'll start right there. All right. Who wants to pray? Pray. Thank you for getting us all here for Sunday school, and especially for everybody just welcoming me and my fiance. And as we go into worship and, and the sermon, 